0: So 97, three more to 300. And today we are talking about the Only Ones.
1: Yeah. Uh, welcome, welcome everybody to The Rock Show. I'm Rocker Mike. And um, this, uh, this show's special. Okay, it was a fan-requested show. Uh, shout out to Michael Sawaya, who voted for this in the Facebook group page. Uh, he asked that we, we do a show on Peter Parrott and The Only Ones. Um, Peter Parrott's a very interesting guy uh, perhaps some people out there haven't heard of him you probably know uh, the only one song Another Girl Another Planet it's been in a lot of movies and stuff and I, I know it's been in uh, Boogie Nights it has a good scene when they use that song I think they're all like doing cocaine and shit <laughs> <laughs> when they're doing it I wonder, but, why, uh, I
0: wonder why they picked that song
1: yeah yeah I mean the story of Peter Parrott is, uh, it's an, obviously a musical story, but it's a love story too between his wife, uh, Zena, and himself. Uh, she's his, his lifelong companion. They're still together after 50 years. Um, he's been compared to Lou Reed, he's been compared to Bob Dylan. Uh, a little bit of a splash of Johnny Thunders thrown in there. Uh, he was actually good friends with Johnny Thunders, Peter Parrott was. Um, and, uh, when you talk about Johnny Thunders, you you, you can't help talk, talking about drug addiction. And Peter definitely had that problem for most of his life. Um, he'd be known for his music and his drug intake. Really? Okay. Um, you ready? You know, what would you think when you looked at this, Rob? You know, was he an interesting guy to you? It was
0: pretty good. I, I like that he's, he told one interviewer, saying that, he feels like a cockroach that survived a nuclear fucking <laughs> wasteland.
1: <laughs> he's been through a lot. That's for sure.
0: And he fucking hates social media. Yes. Do you hear him talk about social media? He just like, he think it's ruining everybody. He think it's causing mental illness. he fucking shitting on social media.
1: Well, is he wrong? No, nah, he's not wrong. No, nah, he's not wrong. So, I mean, he's a smart man and he's an amazing, strong writer. And uh, let's get into it. All right, let's talk
0: about definitely when I looked at this guy, uh, he definitely a lot of Lou Reed. Uh, I, I thought it was
1: like, uh, I think yeah, he had, he we're gonna talk t- about that. He was he was influenced by Lou Reed, um, absolutely, probably. You know, L- Lou Reed is a is a tough pill to take for some people. They just don't like his voice or they don't like what he sings about. And Peter Parrott is probably the, the the most famous person that is like a direct line between Lou Reed and himself you know what i'm saying like where you could say wow this guy really was listening really was listening to lou reed not just on the outskirts of a couple of velvet underground songs i'm talking about really listening you know but uh he also was a giant bob dylan fan and and his songs have that element also just uh you know deep Lyrical meanings and stuff like that. It's very interesting.
0: So let's get started. Let's start talking about.
1: All right. So the story of Peter starts at uh, April 8, 1952, at King's College Hospital in the Camberwell section of London. Uh, Peter was born after a difficult pregnancy, and his parents, Albert and Amelia, had been through several miscarriages before a healthy Peter came along. Amelia, who was an Austrian Jew, had family killed during the Holocaust. Uh, Amelia herself was actually imprisoned for being a socialist in Vienna. Uh, Eventually she would be released and would flee down the Danube River with her husband. Uh, They headed for British occupied Palestine, which was a safe place for Jews to to relocate to during that time. the marriage didn't last, and it was in Palestine that Amelia met her second husband, who can only be described and really only has been described as a terrorist. Uh, they did that. have one daughter together named Edith. Uh, that marriage didn't last either. And shortly after that, Amelia would meet Albert Perritt, an Englishman on the Palestinian police force, and he was also a prosecution officer. Uh, after dealing with some high-profile cases, Albert and Amelia would return to London together. Now, Albert Parrott was a man who believed in education, and they, you, you know, he would teach his preschool son Peter math and even how to play chess. Okay, but by the time Peter started school, he was like very far ahead of the other kids. And he would get bored a lot. And this is how we got into trouble a little bit. Um, the other person we have to mention is Zanula Kakuli. Okay. Now, Zanula Kakuli grew up only a short bus ride away from where Peter lived in southeast London. Uh, Peter would shorten her name to Zena when they met. Yeah, Zina, he, yeah. right? And Zena, yeah. And Zena was from a very strict greek immigrant family who grew up basically taking care of her siblings and cleaning the house okay uh she would earn extra money by making clothes for dolls when she was about eight years old uh her background couldn't be any more different than peter's okay but peter by the time he was a teen he had headed to boarding school on a scholarship based on his very good grades Uh, He flirted with the idea of even being a scientist. He was—he was that smart. Uh, At least that's what he told his father, though, because in reality, his main interest was soccer and rock and roll. He he started to grow his hair. Okay, this was the '60s. He started to grow his hair, and he would walk around carrying his Rolling Stones, Beatles, Yardbirds, Kinks, forty-fives around everywhere. Always had them on him. And by the time Peter was 15, the mod scene in England was the latest craze. So he started to smoke cigarettes and ride a scooter like the other mods. Uh, He stopped putting in any effort into school at this point, and he was eventually thrown out. So he was known sometimes to uh, jump on top of the desk and sing small faces songs in the classroom. Um, The mod scene would kind of morph into the hippie scene by 1967. And Peter's hair would be grown even longer as he began to follow early Pink Floyd, uh, catching them around wherever he could, catching shows when original lead singer Sid Barrett would bother to show up for them. Um, By 1968, after a brief stint back in school that ended with another expulsion, uh, Peter began to hit the Southeast London scene hard. Um he had at this point he was a, a, a tremendous Bob Dylan fan. Uh there were many bootlegs at that time of Bob Dylan around. And the idea was to kind of if you were a big Dylan fan, you wanted to hear as many as you could. Um <clears throat> Peter had one in particular that he wanted to hear. Uh he was curious about it. And a friend told him that somebody named John Whitfield had it. Okay. And this guy was a, a school band member. Who played piano? Now he ran into John. He approached him one day on the street, and Zena happened to be with John. They were friends, and they were walking together, and that's how Peter and Zena met. They ended up going back up to John's apartment where they discussed Bob Dylan. They had a long conversation. Now Zena was also very into Bob Dylan, and it created an instant bond between Peter and and, and herself. Uh, she was into rock and roll. She was into blues. In general, but her love for Dylan was the was the lock between the two of them. Uh, She basically got that love of Dylan from her brother Dino, who was really into music and he also played bass. For the first few months, Peter and Zena's relationship was platonic. Uh, Peter was actually they were just friends. They were just friends. Uh, He was about, I believe, two years or almost two years younger than her. But he had never met a girl in his life that was into Bob Dylan and other musical interests that he had as much as himself. So um, they also shared a love for the Velvet Underground, which was very unique at the time. Uh, The relationship would take a turn, though, and it would become romantic. Peter had confessed his love for her and uh, she felt the same but she tried to explain the way her family was to Peter okay they were very strict and they were even looking to do an arranged marriage with somebody back in Greece okay
0: yeah that's the way it was back <clears throat> in the day
1: <clears throat> yeah and you know immigrants would you know like immigrants here they carry their their culture over and in those days they, they they were very strict and greek women only married greek men and and all that so she was kind of you know explaining this to him and he would just sit there listening but he was dumbfounded he really didn't believe it so the romance started to bloom anyways and they became inseparable uh, as much as they could Um, often the two would meet at uh, Whitfield's apartment and Peter showed Zena his lyrics one day stuff that he had started writing when he was about 12 years old Uh, Zena told him she said you know you should learn how to play guitar and he didn't really know how to play. I think he owned a guitar, but he really didn't know how to play. And she taught him. She knew how to play. So she taught him how to play guitar. And within a couple of months, he was like, you know, better than her, basically. Uh, but as much as their romance took off, it became a problem for Zena at home. Her father hated this teen culture that was going on, this rock and roll culture of the time. And he especially didn't like Bob Dylan. And sometimes... Zena would, you know, he'd beat her, basically, because of what she was changing. And he, he, you know, because of her relationship with Peter, she was learning a lot of things about Bob Dylan, the Velvet Underground, and things like that. And the, the amount of time they spent together, it was changing her. And her father just did not approve of what she was turning into. So, Oh, no, the father probably said she's turning into a groupie. Or a groupie yeah, like, or, you, you know, know, you're doing drugs, or, you know, who knows what he was thinking. But yeah. at one point in the summer of 69, it kind of all came to a head uh, with Peter Zener, Zena and her brother, Harry, okay, left. They they ran away, basically. And they were helped by John Whitfield and some others. At first, they would sleep in fields or bus shelters, telephone kiosks. But eventually, Zena raised some money through odd jobs, and they were able to find some cheap apartments. The three of them were living together, often in buildings that you know had some kind of unsavory people in them. And uh, Zena had a job while Peter worked on his music. But at some point, Zena became pregnant, and it became apparent that they basically had to go back. They just couldn't take care of Zena while she was pregnant, kind of being on the run like that. You know? Yeah. Um, one thing to mention is, is is Zena's father was looking for them okay so it was they knew he was looking for them too and it was like he's going to kill us you know so in december of 69 they went back to zena's parents her father okay uh his name was demetrius he would you know like i said he was sometimes seen roaming around the neighborhood with a shotgun looking for his daughter okay uh zena was given basically an option of an arranged marriage back in, in Cyprus, where they were from, okay? Or, and at that, they would have the arranged marriage and she would have to give the baby up for adoption. Or, she could marry the 17-year-old Peter Perry. All right? Uh, that was, you know, Demetrius probably had softened his stance a little bit. At least he gave them that option. Um,
0: Especially now that she was pregnant, had to give that
1: the option. I, I guess so. Um, but, you know, Peter felt like He didn't want to get married But he also didn't want to lose Zena. So he bit the bullet And he married her in a large Greek Orthodox ceremony uh, Sadly By March of 1970 The baby named Nicola Would be born premature But would only live a very short time In the hospital, the baby died uh-huh. Yeah, so it was devastating to both of them um, In the summer of 70. Both of them enrolled in the North London Polytechnic School with uh, Zena looking for a sociology degree while Peter majored in general arts. Uh, everything the two of them had been through would be topics for Peter's songwriting, basically. Uh, but being struggling artists, money was was scarce. So Peter started dealing hash, okay And this was a period that the couple were listening to a lot of the Velvet Underground. And it yeah. kind of showed in, in Peter's earliest compositions. Um, there was a song called Flowers Die that definitely was reminiscent of The Velvet Underground. Um, with a decent steady income from, from dealing hash, Peter would now slip into a more decadent lifestyle. Uh, combined with being a young man, okay, and being married, and he's kind of strayed sometimes away from Xena from with other women. Uh, however, Peter did always return back to Zena, no matter what. Uh, and Zena was amazing because she was very understanding of of all this. Um, she
0: was his fucking manager, right? After a well, while she, she would the right.
1: She would eventually manage him. But even at this point in their relationship, you know, he 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 didn't have a band. Okay, he hadn't really had anything out. He never performed. Uh, but she had a lot of confidence in him that he could do this, and. She understood him for what he was, what he wanted to be. And uh, they had a very, you know, a not non-traditional relationship where where he, you know, could be with other women. And she, she was very understanding, it seemed. Um, now, they were living in the Forest Hills section. And uh, Peter, at that point, he, he was ready to start taking his songs out of the bedroom and Zena being the only member and basically showing his music to other people. Uh, they had a musician friend of theirs named John Newey, and he would be the first one to hear Peter's work in the spring of 1972. Uh, Newey was blown away. All right. He had known Peter for a while and he hadn't really, you know, he knew of some of the earliest compositions he had, but when he heard him this time, he was blown away. Basically Peter, had gone over to his apartment with an acoustic guitar and sat on the floor and just, you know, played for him. And he was blown away. So Peter wanted to put a band together immediately. Uh, and he even had a name for it. He was going to call it England's Glory. Now The name, uh, the, the name England's Glory comes from the, the name of a company that made matchbooks, okay, in England. I think it's still around uh it would you know it was a popular book of matches england's glory um john newey immediately dumped the band that he was in okay and um he threw in with with peter basically right away um several combinations of different guitarists would would come and go they would be tried out and eventually it would settle in with peter Parrott on vocals and guitar john newey who played drums they had a guy named Dave Clark on lead guitar and Harry Kakuli on bass. Okay, Kakuli uh, would later play in the band Squeeze. Okay, you remember Squeeze, right? Yeah, well, Squeeze. Yeah. Yep, yep. And the songs Peter had written were very reminiscent to Lou Reed, uh, and and it was so much that you know when when they went into the studio in late '72. Okay. They went into the Underhill studios. It turned out that Lou Reed was actually there at the studios practicing with his band, the Tots, that he had. And that, oh, wow. Yeah. And that was right around the time when I believe Transformer was going to be made. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in between his first not too successful solo album, just called Lou Reed, and then Transformer, he had this band called the Tots. And uh, they were practicing. They were going to be. Basically, uh, you know, playing, I believe, on Transformer eventually or I'm not sure. I think he would actually to tell you the truth. I think he would actually dump the tots and they would have different guys working on Transformer. But it was that in-between period between those two albums. Uh, Also in the studio was Iggy Pop. Iggy and the Stooges were were playing there, too, recording. Uh, Now, Peter intended to cut a proper vinyl record and present that to any interested record labels. So he, he wanted to actually have an album already pressed, even if he just had a few copies of it, and say, okay, here's our record, and give it to a record company and see what they could do with it. Now, in the Whitechapel Road studio named Venus, the wives of the band members, including Zena, were brought in to do some backing vocals. Uh, John Newey's buddies, Graham Lapwood and Michael Kemp, were brought in to play acoustic guitar and piano just to boost the sound a little bit. Uh, Peter was becoming quite the vampire at this point He was staying up at night, sleeping days uh, Often John Newey would stay with the Parrots To make sure Peter would be there on time For the Venus studio time that they booked Because it was, it was costing money to make this uh, yeah. Dina was beginning to act as an organizer For Peter and the band So she was starting to get involved with Doing things on a managerial level now, some track titles that they recorded for the album was uh, City of Fun, Peter and the Pets, Devotion, Bright Lights, Trouble in the World, Predictably Blonde, and Broken Arrows, among a few others. Uh, some of these songs would eventually turn up with the only ones, okay? But this was England's Glory, and it was his first band. The band at this point set out to uh, do a s- self-promoted gig at the Ammerley Town Hall. Uh three hundred guests were invited, and the band had just gotten twenty-five acetate copies of the album and set some aside for interested labels, but gave some to friends and fellow hash dealers that Peter knew. <laughs> okay, so the gig. <laughs> Way to start. Yeah, yeah. Why not? You know, have your have your business partners there, right? So yeah. the gig at Amherley went well. Uh, it was a mix of rock and a little bit of folk because he did some songs acoustically uh xena had taken over as manager at this point full-time and she yeah, was would-
0: he's like this crime all over the place you know like he's like all over the place especially him peter but he was definitely like they call him like power 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 pop new wave punk rock all the other shit with all the different bands because he had a few bands into now that he played with um his sons. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. I mean, now,
1: now you know, as of a couple of years ago, he's, he was playing with his two sons, and, and we're going to talk about that later. But... He, yeah, so the gig goes good. Yeah, yeah. So the gig went well, okay? Um, And uh, they, Zena had taken over managing, and she set up some meetings with A&R guys for many different record labels, okay? RCA was one, yeah. CBS, Island, okay? They all turned... Uh, they all turned them down, unfortunately. Okay, what oh. they what they felt was they were the band was good, but they would often complain that Peter's vocals sounded too much like Lou Reed. All right, now, definitely. Yeah. Now, an interesting turn of events would happen when Peter and Zena showed up at the EMI offices in Manchester Square. Uh, they would air to see David Sanderson from EMI, and he was impressed with both of them. He realized that. This couple were, uh, you know, uh, Zena and Peter were really two real rock and roll people. Okay, they listened to the record and Sanderson thought Peter was a little too much like Lou Reed, but he asked them to leave a copy of the record, which they did. He also set up some time for the band to record a demo for EMI. All right. Now, in a moment of brilliance on Sanderson's part, he decided to pull a prank that he hoped would lead to some good publicity for the band. He invited New Musical Express rock journalist Nick Kent down to hear what he told him was some Velvet Underground outtakes. He brought in Sounds Magazine writer John Ingram in just to make it look legit. And Kent was chopping at the bit to hear some rare Lou Reed stuff that nobody's ever heard. And he also agreed to keep it a secret Okay, and and don't let it leave anything in the EMI offices. But David Sanderson put on the England's Glory album, okay for Kent, and Kent's eyes lit up as soon as he he heard it. Uh, he listened, but after a little while, he kind of started noticing things about the record. All right, uh, he was starting to doubt that this was the Velvet Underground. Um, he when they played the second side, there's a song called Peter and the Pets on side two, and. Kent knew right away from a lyric that, uh, that was sung that it was no way it was Lou Reed. And the lyric was um, two men from Poland, keeping us apart. We're poles apart. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. and Kent, Kent was like, no, that's not Lou Reed. Okay. And he called him out on it and and they basically had to confess. Okay. But, When it came to the EMI demos, uh, guitarist Dave Clark didn't want any part of it. Uh, He left the band at that point, and they put an ad out for a guitarist. Uh, They ended up getting a female named Julie. Okay, she filled in for a little while to do the demos. But during the recording sessions, uh, it became obvious that Julie wasn't working out. Uh, Sanderson thought her look wasn't right, and Peter just hated her playing in general. There there simply wasn't any solos. You know, Clark had been a a good soloist, good lead guitarist. Julie just didn't cut it. Um, Basically, because of that, the EMI deal that they had fell through. Okay, at least as far as for making demos that might have led to them getting signed. Um, The band would go through a few more guitar players, but eventually Peter kind of lost interest. And he was making a lot of money selling his hash. And he decided to emphasize that for a while. Okay. Now, over the next three years, Peter and Zena were living a rock and roll decadent lifestyle. Okay. Uh, even though Peter had no band to call his own, Zena began to design clothes. Okay. And she would design clothes for people like Mark Boland. Okay. And also uh, designer Vivian Westwood had become interested in, in what she was doing with clothing. Uh, all this time, Peter kept doing his songwriting. Uh, he would also start to be more upfront about his sexual escapades. Uh, by January of 75, Peter had what could only be called a harem. Okay? He had Zena, his wife, a woman named Kathy Barrett, who was friends with Zena, and, and yeah. a work friend of Kathy's named... Lucinda Foster, and I believe Kathy and Lucinda worked at the Playboy Club or something like that, okay? Now, Zena knew what was going on, and she basically accepted it. Um, by May of 75, Peter, Zena, and Lucinda would move into a house in the Blackheath section of, of London, and Peter would spend nights basically high on hash and trading time between the girls in each room. Not a bad, uh, not a bad uh, life, right?
0: Nah, <laughs> nah, not a bad right? life.
1: Now, the last half of 75 involved Peter's songwriting and putting the seeds of what would become the only ones together. He wanted to emerge out of this, like, hash fog he was in and, and create something. And it was in- an interesting time in London, too, because uh, the Vivian Westward and uh, Malcolm McLaren shop called Sex was also the breeding ground, for the new emerging punk scene and its star band, the Sex Pistols. Now, Through 75, Peter recorded demos, some of them with guitarist buddy John Terry. John was known as a member of the Rat Bites from Hell. They were a popular British rock band from the early 70s. Uh, Peter and John's friendship was not just musical. They both enjoyed cocaine, which is something Peter was starting to sell, along with his hash and marijuana. Uh, Zena was noticing that Peter's drug taste though was starting to gravitate towards heroin, and
0: yeah, because he was getting into more and more stronger stuff, he wasn't probably
1: that high no more. Uh, yeah, and I think he just was flirting with death, you know what I mean? And yeah. um, he was interested in these extremes. Um, she tried to keep him away from it, but eventually that would not be possible. Um, As John and Peter recorded and basically rehearsed, they were using a drummer named Alan Platt. But as soon as the spring of 76 came along, Peter met ex-Spooky Tooth drummer Mike Kelly, and he was very quickly recruited into the band. At one of their rehearsals over the summer, a bass player named Alan Mayer joined shortly after watching the band rehearse in the studio. Uh, Mayer was on the scene for a long time. He was a little bit older than them. Uh, he was in a, in a Scottish band called the Beatstalkers from the early 60s. And the Beatstalkers are often remembered as the Scottish Beatles. Um, the only ones, though, kind of unnamed at that point, they would be formed from there, from that point. That would be the the, the founding of it. They didn't have a name yet. OK, but they were rehearsing. Um, however, at home, Peter's love triangle with Xena and Lucinda was getting complicated. Uh, Lucinda was acting very possessive toward Peter, and was trying to pull Peter away from Zena. Zena grew sick of this kind of shit. She didn't like these games, and didn't, yeah, this ain't happening yeah, and no she more. and she actually moved out. So Lucinda's relationship was not just based on sex with Peter; it was also a relationship based on a love for smack. Okay, and Lucinda, as she got more addicted, got more paranoid and possessive with Peter. But Peter was convinced he loved Lucinda and Zena, but the fact that Zena moved out and got her own place, it, it made him miss her more, OK? And eventually he started spending more time at Zena's place, which just would piss off Lucinda. So Zena was acting as band manager and, and drug dealing partner at that point, and she would go to Bolivia sometimes on more than one occasion she went. And she would seal deals with Peter's suppliers from Bolivia. So she was flying from England to South America and back. Now, one of these deals brought a lot of profit that went right into the band. Uh, They bought all new equipment and instruments. All they needed was a name. And Peter had a dream one night and woke in the morning to find out that he scrawled the words, the only ones on a piece of paper next to the bed. So that became the name. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, Zena, for legal purposes, reverted back to her maiden name, which was Kakuli, and booked some studio time for the Only Ones in the, in the tuning section of England. Uh, it was a place that Peter had done some demos a year earlier. Uh, right before hitting that studio, Peter and Zena got invited to a party and was introduced to Keith Richards by a business partner named Stefan Stone. Stone had played an only one's cassette to Richards, and he be- immediately became interested in producing the band. Uh, he showed up at a rehearsal one night at the studio. Uh, they were working on the tracks Flowers Die and Breaking Down when Keith came in with his son Marlon to check him out. Uh, nothing would you know, nothing would come of, of Richards' interest, though, in the band. Uh, he was actually... You know, Richard was actually fucked up at that point. He was out of it. And he was a year away from his big bust in Canada that eventually would sober him up. But in late 76, Peter and the band were were summoned to Keith's house in the Chelsea section where he played piano and worked. they worked out some wow. songs for the only ones. But it, it basically what it that night turned into was one big Coke party, all right? And Richard and Peter Parrott, we were, were trying to basically out snort each other on how much they could do. And the band, yeah, the oh band members God. were actually shocked at the amount of Coke Peter was doing. He was actually in a Coke contest with Keith. <laughs> that must have been an uh, yeah, You're talking Holy a mountain, shit. right? Now, yeah. in January of 77, the only ones would play their first live gig. Uh, it also happened to be the same day as Zena's 27th birthday. Uh, the show was at a place called The Greyhound, and it was hyped, and the audience was filled with friends and other characters like Stefan Stone and even former Birds producer Terry Melcher. Melcher? Okay. The, may-
0: the Greyhounds, Greyhound been mentioned here yes. in the show before, yes. right? Yes. No, no. The Greyhound
1: is Greyhound uh, is the name of a place. It was a club. Yeah, yeah, I mean,
0: that's what I mean. It's been, it's been named as a place where other yes, bands have yes, played. I,
1: I think, um, that we've done. In England, it's a famous place to play. I'm sh- I, You know, it's, it sounds like something maybe, maybe the Kinks played at. I know we did talk about it. Um, and also, we've talked about Terry Melchick, okay, because of the Birds and the Paul yeah. Revere and the Raiders show and all that. He produced both of them. Now, Peter had made the band the five-piece for its live debut. He added a keyboard player for the show, uh, the opening track was a reworked England's glory number called The Guest. And some other songs they did was a song called Oh No, which was a little punkish. Uh, there was a song called In-Betweens. And then uh, what would be the one that, what would be their first single eventually, uh, Lovers of Today. <clears throat> now, a week after the Greyhound gig, Xena booked the only ones at a famous West End club called The Speakeasy. And they quickly would begin a residency there playing several gigs. Uh, the audience you might find at the Speakeasy on any night would be guys from the Sex Pistols, guys from the Clash. And often you would find members of the Heartbreakers there as well. Uh, they, they had basically a residency there and they, they, recorded a, <clears throat> they recorded an album there actually called DTK Live at the Speakeasy. So they were, they were regulars there. Now, this was the beginning of a friendship between Peter and Johnny Thunders from the Heartbreakers. Uh, According to legend, Johnny Thunders approached Peter and said he liked his voice. And they quickly became friends, especially when they both discovered that they had a taste for heroin. (laughs) Now, popularity for The Only Ones was starting to kind of bubble under the surface. But once they recorded The Single Lovers of Today with the B-side being Peter and the Pets, which was an old English glory song, uh, it began to put them on the map as a a great up-and-coming band. But Peter started his own label at this point called Vengeance and released the single for Lovers of Today on that. And it was released as a 12-inch and eventually also as a 7-inch as it began to sell more. Uh, It also began their first period of -of out-of-town gigs. They were starting to play out of the area uh they played the the south of wales um and they were playing in some pubs in that area which really were dangerous because they were basically like football pubs and rugby pubs and these guys
0: (laughs) right and these,
1: these guys were not uh you know liking to to this kind of music okay you know, especially somebody like Peter, who's like a little small and, you know, maybe you want to say a little effeminate. Uh, you know, they, they did not take highly to this band. They were throwing bottles at them and they, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, the tour, um, though it was rough, it, it helped them gain popularity through most of England. And New Musical Express magazine started to take notice. So did Sounds magazine and the Record Mirror. All three made the song, Lovers of Today, the single of the week in July 1977. During the first tour and after the band hit several studios to lay down tracks, they had been performing live. Now, The whole of the Law was a song that was one of them and a track called Special View. uh, Sometimes it was called Telescopic Love. It had two titles. Uh, They would be working hard on what would be their most famous song Another Girl, Another Planet. Uh, Record companies were starting to become aware of the buzz about the only ones, but the band didn't want to sign up right away. They kind of wanted to play the whole field before they signed up with anybody. So another person hearing the buzz was DJ John Peel. And on September 13th, 1977, the band recorded their first session for the Radio Man, whose show could either make or break you. And they recorded Lovers of Today, Oh no, Telescopic Love, and a song called In Betweens. And after that, they did another tour of Scotland and uh, other places, and they played with uh, the Stranglers, Chris Spedding, and Eddie and the Hot Rods. Awesome. Wait.
0: Wow, definitely. Yeah, yeah. They were opening bands. for these
1: bands. Okay. And yeah, now Ed wow. Hollis, um, who was the late manager of Eddie and the Hot Rods, approached Peter and offered the band some free studio time at Island Records. Uh, It was here that Peter put down the lead vocals for Another Girl, Another Planet and remixed it with Hollis and a young Steve Lillywhite, who would be a name that would come up later. Uh, These mixes, though, turned out to be kind of unsatisfactory as everybody was doing cocaine long into the night in the studio. Now, record companies was still calling and one that was calling was seymour stein uh seymour stein was the ceo of sire records uh he had signed new york city bands like the ramones the talking heads and the dead boys uh in fact when stein came to england to meet the only ones he had the dead boys with him okay and the two the the two bands and seymour stein went out to dinner one night uh it wasn't a good night. Apparently, the bands didn't like each other. Uh, it wasn't getting on well. Peter felt like the dead boys were just acting like children in the restaurant and being slobs on purpose, and he didn't care for that. Um, but after dinner, Stein took the only ones back to the apartment he was staying at, and he mentioned to them that he liked to smoke hash. So Peter was happy to oblige. He had some, ha- he had some hash. And he yeah. showed Stein a trick that you could do when you're smoking hash that really fucks you up. Okay, what what you do is you you cut the bottom of a plastic bottle, and you're gonna smoke through that bottle, right? Oh and, yeah, you and, get fucked up. Yeah, like but, that. but what you do up. is you take um, you need like two knives, and you gotta heat the knives up. You need somebody to help you with this. You can't. You don't have enough hands to do it yourself, but. You heat, you heat the knives up so they get, like, red hot. And then you drop a lump of the, of the hash on the knife. And when it hits the knife, the heat makes it kind of, like, puff up and explode. And you, you smoke all that in, like, one big toke. Okay? And it, it, Seymour Stein did that, and he passed out. <laughs> 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 so he, he knocked him he knocked out on the floor okay um drummer mike kelly's label from his spooky tooth days was island records <clears throat> and they were interested now chris blackwell uh was in charge of island and uh he wanted to get involved with the only ones just like he did with bob marley and they you know they they seriously considered I, island records but Peter was very interested in signing up with CBS when they came calling,
0: And the reason was, yeah. was
1: because Bob Dylan was on CBS and that was all he needed to know. Uh, it basically came down at that point to Island or CBS. And there was quite a bit of back and forth where Chris Blackwell from Ireland would match what CBS would offer. Um, and he would, you know, they would bid back and forth Xena uh, before Christmas of 77, dialed herself up one day for a meeting with top CBS executives in the A&R department. Uh, She had her figures down to the penny that they wanted and wouldn't back off. She actually walked out of the meeting because they weren't, they weren't going for it. All right. But she ended up getting a phone call from CBS shortly after that. And CBS offered them 10,000 pounds more than they originally offered and they signed a deal altogether for 70,000 pounds, for 10 albums with another 250,000 pounds spread out over those 10 albums, which was a pretty good deal. OK, so they they signed up with CBS. Now, on Christmas Eve, the only ones played a lively gig at the Roundhouse with Eddie and the Hot Rods, except this time Eddie and the Hot Rods were opening for them. And a band-aid themselves opened for a year earlier, okay? Like I said. Now, next, they would have to work on a debut album. That would be the next step. They checked into the CBS studios on Whitfield Street, and right off the bat, they cut the song Someone Who Cares, the song It's the Truth, and also No Peace for the Wicked. The guitar work by Perry on these songs are just classic, okay? Perry's an amazing guitarist, and uh, the only ones... Openly had ripping guitar solos in their songs, which was something that you know the other punk bands didn't do or couldn't do. <clears throat> um, it, it kind of put the band in a class by themselves at the time. Now they they were around during punk, obviously in in in, in England, but they really wa- weren't of that scene. You know what I'm saying? Uh, a lot a lot a lot of the punk fans yeah. liked the only ones. But it was kind of like they were just in their own league. It was like, okay, I like the Sex Pistols. I like the Clash. But, you know, the only ones were kind of like off to the side. They were considered good. They were great. They were considered great. But not exactly punk. And they they didn't care. They didn't want to be part of that scene anyway. All right. So the final recordings for the debut album would be done at Basing Street Studios over a few weeks period. Uh, they brought in sax player Raphael Ravenscroft. Uh, he was the guy responsible for the saxophone intro on Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street song. Okay, you know that song, right? Ooh. Okay, so he, he did the sax, yeah. yep. and he was he was brought in to do the saxophone intro on Hole of the Law on the album. Now, also, there was a Gordon Edwards brought in to play synthesizer on Creature of Doom. Uh, Peter had always been open about his drug use, Uh, and as he got deeper into heroin, he would start to write about it. All right. And the song on the first album about heroin is a song called the beast. And the song is basically about believing that addiction won't happen to you. Uh, he was, he was watching his girl, Lucinda get deeper and deeper into addiction. And Peter was saying, well, it's not going to happen to me. Okay, but it slowly was. Yeah, yeah. Now, the lucrative record deal actually turned out to not be so lucrative at first because once all the bills were paid, which included new equipment and uh, a top-notch PA system that they really didn't need but they bought, they ended up with something like 500 pounds each. Okay, so, you know, even though it was a nice deal to start, they had a lot of debt uh cbs set spring of 78 as the release for the first only ones album uh it will be titled the only one self-titled uh peter kind of kept busy with the cast of characters like rock journalist nick kent uh sid vicious johnny thunders they were hanging out he played briefly in a band with johnny called the living dead and sid vicious actually played bass at one gig that they did uh Johnny thunders had promised city let him play on, on this one gig, but it was obvious that Sid was too fucked up. Cause they ended up unplugging his base. Like, like, him. and he just was,
0: you know, <laughs> apparently
1: like he kind of knew at one point that the bass wasn't on and he looked upset, but you know, he kept going. And then eventually I think they, they took him off stage. I don't think he completed the gig, but he was just too fucked up that they had to turn off his base. Um, uh, Johnny Thunders at this point was getting ready to record his first solo album called So Alone, and he asked Peter to play on it, which he would do uh, eventually. Now during this time, he was hanging out a lot with Thunders, and you know the two of them would get deeper and deeper into the heroin use. Now the only ones started an album promotional tour in in April. It actually began with the second John Peel recording session, and they recorded the song The Beast. No Peace for the Wicked, Another Girl, Another Planet, and a song called Language Problem. On the tour, yeah, now on the yeah. tour, the other band members began to notice how seriously Peter had changed. He was basically on heroin time, which meant he was late for everything, including recording sessions. Now, Xena managed to keep it all together somehow, but the first single off the debut album was the song Another Girl, Another Planet. The band and the label CBS were convinced the song was going to be a hit, but it actually bombed when it was first released. Uh, all the t- At the time of its release, the only ones went on tour with the New York City band Television. Most people felt that Television and the only ones were very similar bands, so kind of like pairing, the- pairing them up oh, together yeah. would make sense for a tour, you know? But the tour actually... It didn't go so well. The bands kind of crisscrossed the UK. But television singer Tom Verlaine came off as like standoffish. And uh, there was a tragic accident when the truck carrying their instruments crashed and it killed the driver. All right. Yeah. Now, Peter, however, got along very well with television guitarist Richard Lloyd, mostly due to the both of them liking to do heroin um in mid-may cbs began a promotional blitz right before the release of the album the album appeared in ads and newspapers the music press was beginning getting copies of it they started making reviews uh sounds magazine new musical express melody maker all gave the album excellent reviews five stars uh unfortunately it didn't really translate into a lot of record sales. Now, Johnny Thunder's So Alone recording sessions would conclude in June of 78. And Peter and drummer Mike Kelly were brought in at the end to do their contributions on five tracks. Um, Song called Ask Me No Questions, She's So Untouchable, Subway Train, and You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory. They did contribute on the title track, So Alone. But that track would be left off the album, even though the album was called Solo. And the reason that is is because when they were recording it uh, during the big guitar solo, Thunders, being totally out of his mind, wasted fell into Mike Kelly's drum kit right in the middle of the guitar solo, and they didn't have they didn't have they didn't have oh, any no. way of, of continuing the recording at that point. They, I think they might have ran out of money or what. Now Steve Lillywhite was involved with the production of that album. So he was back in play. Um, there was discussion of an American tour now coming soon, but the remainder of 78 was spent gigging around the UK with the only ones. Uh, they play colleges, halls, different venues. Uh, one particular gig at the London Lyceum Theater on October 1st saw television's Richard Lloyd come on stage for the encore of No Peace for the Wicked. Um Lloyd apparently, according to Peter, was so out of tune that Peter said it was the worst guitar playing he ever heard in his life. (laughs) Now (laughs) there was an after party, after show party, okay, and it ended with Peter taking Richard Lloyd back to the Forest Hill apartment that they kept, okay, Um, and Zena was there, and she actually was pregnant, and she was in bed not feeling well and Lloyd and uh, Richard Lloyd and, and Peter showed up and uh, basically they were drinking. They had, they had done some drinking um, and, and Peter put out an inch long line of heroin. And yeah, uh, now oh according God. to the story, Lloyd might've also done some downers or something when he was drinking, but when he did the line of heroin after 30 seconds, his mouth turned blue, and he was he was completely unconscious. Oh, Peter knew he was overdosing, and there was nothing Zena could do because she couldn't get out of bed. and And he called up Mike Kelly, who lived nearby, and they picked Lloyd up, who was actually kind of a big guy, and took him to the hospital. Okay, now I want to explain something about wow. <laughs> about the heroin abuse, heroin use, you say okay. Yeah, yeah, these these yeah. guys were yeah. going
0: crazy where the hell went. When we, if it wasn't cocaine, it was, it was like they, they took the level. From now, I don't know if you remember when we did the went. Richard
1: Hell show, we talked about Richard Lloyd because they played together, okay? And uh, yeah. Lloyd yeah. would would have a, a heroin problem for a long time, but he would eventually sober up. But when his wife died, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, he committed suicide by overdosing. Yeah, but I want to explain something about the use of heroin in the seventies compared to the the UK and the USA, okay? In the UK, the, the the quality and the and the and the strength of the of the heroin was stronger than what you saw in the United States. In other words, it was more pure. And what Peter used to do was something called chasing the dragon. Peter wasn't into needles. He didn't shoot. I mean, he did a couple of times shoot, but he he preferred and usually would smoke it. Basically, and what you do is you put the heroin on a aluminum foil and you light it up, and you you the the vapor that comes out of it you try to smoke it. Okay, like you might use like uh, I guess like another you make a straw out of something, something to 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 to, you know, get it into your mouth, okay, and you you inhale that vapor, and the good, and it gets you super gets high, you but super you won't high. really overdose, okay, because it's not like you're injecting it right into yourself, okay, so it, it's hard to overdose doing that because it's just like uh, it, people used to smoke opium in a pipe. Okay, and you just you just basically yeah. nod off, and you you don't overdose from that. In the United States, <clears throat> yeah, we'll well, nice that's, what, that's what it comes down to. <laughs> in the United States, um, the 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 heroin is 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 weaker; it's cut more. Okay, so in order to get that high, you, you, you people find that they like to inject. Now, when you're injecting. You know, you could sniff it, you could snort it, you could do the chasing the dragon, but the, you don't get that big high as you do when you inject. Okay? So, you know, that's why in America you, you have the, you know, people doing that because it's kind of like the only way to really get that ultimate high off the heroin. Um, Johnny Thunders, that's, you know, jo- Johnny was Johnny was known to just shoot if he didn't have any drugs, he would just shoot water. Just to, just to have, just to have that, (laughs) that feeling of like something coming into your body, even though it wouldn't make him high. But yeah, that's how, that's how far gone Johnny got. Um, Yeah. Now, you know, chasing the dragon was what, was what Peter used to like to do. Uh, Now on October 12th, Peter and Mike Kelly joined Johnny Thunders on stage at the London Lyceum. Uh, he did kind of an all-stars gig to celebrate the release of So Alone. And the next day, the news broke from New York City that Sid Vicious was arrested for murdering Nancy Spungen, his girlfriend. And uh, yeah, now Thunders came home shit. the next day to revive the Heartbreakers. He was going to take the Heartbreakers out again. And he wanted to try to help his friend Sid if he could. Um, The end of 78 into 79 saw the Only Ones ready to record their follow-up to the self-titled debut. Uh, Songs for a new album flowed from Peter on what would be called Even Serpents Shine. And that's my personal favorite of the three albums by the Only Ones. Um, Throughout the recording of this album, Peter's relationship with Lucinda was deteriorating, and she became an interference in the band. Um, often acting crazy in the studio. Lucinda was, was always trying to get Peter's attention. She would dress all sexy and try to seduce him in the studio. Uh, if, she, well, if he didn't pay attention to her, she would get upset. Uh, you know, He just felt she was selfish, and, and Peter was kind of at the end of it with her. Um, even Serpent Shine is, is great. Uh, some of the standout tracks on it is uh, Out There in the Night which is actually a song about Peter's cats. And uh, a song called Someone Who Cares, In-Betweens, a great one called Curtains for You, and a song called Miles from Nowhere. Now, in January of 79, they played uh, some gigs up in Newcastle. Uh, There was a new TV show there called All Right Now that was actually using Another Girl, Another Planet as its theme song. So the only ones were invited on. Xena, uh, at the same time, was working with Ian Copeland, okay, in securing a U.S. tour, which would begin uh, at the end of the month. By the time they were ready to make their American debut, even Serpent Shine would be completed. Uh, one thing to mention about the second album compared to the first one is that it was a, the first was a team effort and it was self-produced. On Serpents, uh, on the Serpents album, uh, the production reins were kind of split between Peter, Alan Mayer in the Only Ones, and engineer Robert Ash. Um, the first stop in America at the end of January would be in New York City. Uh, they landed at JFK in the middle of a blizzard, and they unloaded and they unloaded at the Iroquois uh-huh. Hotel on Sixth Avenue. Uh, it wasn't a five-star hotel. Okay, but, but CBS was actually yeah. not paying for this tour. Vengeance Records, which they still had, was actually the ones paying for it. Uh, that was their own label, so it was basically a self-funded tour. Um, interesting enough, the, the, the Iroquois Hotel was a shithole, basically, and the very first meal that the band ate in America was at Burger King on 6th Avenue. Right, <laughs> but. Okay, just to just so you understand what they were going through. But Hurrah's the Club Hurrah's would be the first venue played in New York City. Uh, the audience was filled with punk and new wave fans. Uh, the only way to get that album at that point was was through imports, okay? So there were a handful of people there that were familiar with the band, but not everybody had the album. Now, after the gig news broke out that Sid Vicious had died of an overdose. Um, so they were kind of in the middle of that. Reviews of the band, the band's hurrah gig, okay, did the hit the stands at the same time, okay, as all this. And, and it was a glowing review, all right? Uh, a lot of the rock critics liked the only ones. Um, the band did a press conference at the CBS Records New York offices, and got a full-page article in the New York Rocker. Uh, the interviews came at the same time as the English release of "You've Got to Pay," okay, uh, which was another single. Some personal time was spent between Peter and his older sister Edith from his mother's prior marriage. She actually lived in New York, okay, and Peter got Peter had only met her once wow. before, and got to spend some time with her there in New York. Now, another gig at Haraz followed with that. Um, they also had a wasted trip up to Boston. Uh, the show got canceled like just as they got there because they were late due to a snowstorm. Um, they ended up going up to Toronto on February 7th of that year to do a, to, to do a show. Um, by the time the band got home, CBS was ready to release Even Serpent's Shine, on March 4th and the band was ready to start a three month tour. All of this gigging around uh were, ba- were basically making them a top live act to see. And they would do some big shows over this time including another John Peel session, an old Grey Whistle Test TV show appearance, a gig on the Rock Against Racism bill at Lancaster University. Uh the second album would peak at number 42 and sell 30,000 copies pretty quickly. Uh, the first album had only gotten to number 56. CBS seemed to be losing patience with the band, though, because uh, the release of... Uh, uh, they ended up kind of putting out a single and not telling the band. Uh, they released the single Out There in the Night with the B-side, Lovers of Today, and Peter and the Pets. And they didn't tell the band, and you know, Peter had other plans on what was going to be the single. But there wasn't much they could do about it. Um, yeah, that happens a lot. Oh shit! The tour would be mm-hmm.
0: so these so these guys are touring. They're seeing, but even after all that, they they were did they like get a really big? really popular
1: no. thing. No, they were a live act to see. They no, were right? Very popular. They did a lot of shows all over yeah. England, um, and even in America, they were very well received but it just didn't translate for some reason into a lot of commercial success. Now over the years, for well, the last 40 years, those albums have sold a lot more than they ever did when, when the band existed, you know, there could you know oh, the yeah, only yeah, ones that considered, you know, one of the best British bands of the seventies. Okay. But at the time it didn't really, you know, translate into a lot for them. Um, the tour would begin to wind down by April and a gig at the rainbow with support acts, lonesome, no more, uh, the latent buzzards and John Cooper Clark. They'd only be about two thirds full. These shows, uh, the critics loved the two albums and they had their die hard fans, but again, it didn't translate into a lot of commercial success. Also heroin started to be a really big problem. Um, Alan Mayer who never took it. Okay. But John Perry took it often. And Peter was basically a full-fledged addict at this point. Uh, Zena was noticing and that he was fucked up on stage and everything. And she was threatening to leave if he didn't at least stop doing that. Getting fucked up for shows. Okay. Now, she concentrated on managing the band and getting gigs. But she ended up getting pregnant again. And after several miscarriages that had happened before... Uh, she didn't want to tell Peter right away But as soon as, as, soon as she began To show Damn. She told Peter And uh, he, he had kind of a He didn't care He had like a laissez-faire kind of attitude about it Like whatever And uh, But as time went on and, and she was getting on With her pregnancy Peter kind of came around and he got excited To the fact that he was a father um, Zena would actually Give birth Peter excuse me, Peter Jr. on June 20th, 1979. It was, uh, you know, she had several miscarriages after that first baby that passed away. Uh, and the baby was born premature, yeah. which was reminiscent of the first child that, that had died. Uh, yeah. but, but Peter would survive. Yeah. And he came home with the couple and child yeah. would move into a large house with Peter's parents and they would kind of live on the top floor. Uh, their parents would live on the top floor, and, and, and Peter and Zena and the baby had the rest. Um, the band was feeling burned out, but a new album deadline loomed, and the band was looking for a bit of a, of a retreat. So they would regroup and recover at Yes guitarist Steve Howe uh, Farm. Okay, he had a, a studio... Uh, at a place called Langley Farm. It had an eight-track studio in it, and the only ones laid down some preliminary tracks for the third album. They worked on a song called Me and My Shadow, a song called Trouble in the World, and Devon's song, okay? Now, a quick one-off gig with the Psychedelic Furs was a break from recording, but following that September, uh, that September show, they immediately hit Utopia Studios with producer Colin Thurston in tow.
0: Did they open? Did they open opened for,
1: yeah. yeah. open for that? Yeah, yeah. Wow. you know, you could hear a lot of the only ones in their music. You could tell the influence. You know, uh, speaking of yeah. them, just as a side note, they have a new album out. And I've been checking it out. And it might be the album of the year. But I'll let you know more about that later on. Wow. I haven't heard the whole thing yet. Um, now, th- that show was in September, and they went back into s- the studio with a, with a producer. Uh, CBS kind of, you know, foisted this guy on them. They, they didn't want to have anybody outside really produce, okay? But they, there wasn't much they could do about it. Uh, CBS now had released... A compilation of the first two albums in the United States, and it was called Special View. It was kind of like a, a little bit off the first one, a little bit off the second one, and uh, so they
0: did like a almost like a kind of a, a two two Right, album right. Kind it was like deal, the, deal, best the best songs they felt songs.
1: off of the each one, and they put it on one album. Um, a second tour of America was now scheduled. Yeah. They had twenty six dates lined up. Um, yes the tour was a problem right off the bat when it was realized that the special view album wouldn't be available in all the cities in the States. Okay. Yeah. The the places they were planning to play, they were finding that the album couldn't be found and it was a problem with distribution. Um, The tour did kick off again in New York city at Haraz. Uh, The musical press in the States raved about the band. And they were touring in the country, but you just couldn't find the album. All right. And after going to Boston and Philly, the band detoured back to New York City to do a gig at CBGB's. Now they had never played there before. In fact, I don't think they'd ever been there before. And the band had agreed to do this gig based on the legendary status of CBGB's. But Peter was surprised when he got there at uh, just how sleazy the club was. Okay. All right. And, you know, to this day, he <laughs> says he hated playing there. He said the gig sucked. The place was a shithole. Okay. And it was. Okay. But, <laughs> but you know, you had to play. If you, in those days, that kind of band, you had to play CBs, right? So now when they played CBs, he reconnected with, with Johnny Thunders again. Uh, they had some time. To stay in new york and they began hanging out both of them were scoring dope on the lower east side uh peter wasn't really used to this kind of life okay even though he was doing heroin the 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 dealing and the scoring of it wasn't like this in england okay uh what they used to do on the lower east side if you remember sometimes you could just have a cab take you somewhere and they would just roll the window down and drop everything in and take off OK, you know, and the cab drivers knew what, what was going yeah. on, you know, but or you had to wait online in some bad building, you know, and people lower things down on a bucket. That's how, that's how it was in those days. Um, but, you know, he was happy just to be hanging out with Johnny because they did have a, a real friendship, real close friendship besides the drug use. Um, they hit the road again for Toronto, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee. They also played a southern date in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, that gig barely happened because uh, there were some local good old boys that wanted to beat Peter up with a bat and because they just didn't like the music and they wanted to run him out of town. <laughs> um, when they played Atlanta, Peter got the inspiration for Baby's Got a Gun. And he was wasted one night uh, and, and met a girl and went back to her place. She was some kind of stripper. Okay. And she actually, oh, shit. Um, I think it was one of the first times he had ever injected. He, you know, he shot her. She, she shot him up. She tied him up and, and shot him up with heroin. And when he went to leave at the end of the night, she pulled a gun on him and tried to rob him. Yeah. Now he got out of there. Whoa. He got out of Atlanta in one piece. Um, they had some New York city dates again. And uh, the the last gig in New York was at Irving Plaza. Uh, They also did an interview on WPIX. Okay. Uh, Peter got interviewed with John Perry as well. They played a couple of songs. They picked some songs for the DJ to play. Uh, One was the Stones' Tumbling Dice. And um, Perry was asked by the interviewer, you know, who are the other members of The Only Ones? And he replied, I don't know but I wish them a lot of luck wherever they are. (laughs) This kind of off the cuff remark that he made was very telling because the only ones were slowly starting to disintegrate. It was kind of hard to notice because of the constant touring, uh, but they were all getting burnt out. And even though the shows were still pretty damn good. Okay. But there was a, a tension between them and they were getting tired. All right. In late October, they played a gig in Paris and they did a television show in Holland and then a live gig at the Paradiso Theater in Amsterdam. Um, This show would eventually be released as a live album in 1993 called The Big Sleep. But uh, Zina wasn't with them in Holland. Uh, And after the last gig, Peter wouldn't get out of bed the following morning when they had to drive back and take the ferry, Okay after like five or six attempts, the the rest of the guys left him there and took the car. And the band went back to England. Um, uh, You know, basically they stranded him there because he had no money. But Peter eventually made his way back. But this had created a bit of a rift in the band. And Peter threatened to shoot Mike Kelly. And he was going to beat up Alan Mayer. Um, You know, it was a big, big row that they had. Now, order would eventually be restored into the band and and more recording would be scheduled. Um, The new album's title was going to be called Baby's Got a Gun. And it was basically influenced from that that incident in Atlanta. And uh, its first single was Trouble in the World, with the B-side being Your Chosen Life. Um, CBS delayed the release of that single because they said the sleeve was unsuitable. It had a large antique crucifix on a table. With the bands, with the bands sitting around it, Ooh, uh, do that. John Perry apparently looked like wasted in the picture. So they had a new pic done that parodied the Doors' first album cover, and the single was released November sixteenth, nineteen seventy nine. Nick Kent, who was always in their corner, he panned it. Okay, he said based on its arrangement and production, it was not good. Now, Colin Thurston and the band seemed to not be very compatible. So the album was still worked on through December. Uh, some classic Only One tracks did come out of these sessions, though. Uh, the Big Sleep song. Okay, the Big Sleep. Uh, and then another track, which is one of my favorites from them, called Why Don't You yep. Kill Yourself. All right. Uh, and that was a tribute to <laughs> Peter's... Uh, no, I'm sorry, not that song. There was another song that was a tribute to uh peter's crazy girlfriend lucinda uh the song is actually called oh lucinda love becomes a habit that's the name of the song and it kind of acted like an official goodbye to her all right so one problem that arose with this album is that peter was always the sole songwriter and he got almost all the credit but other members started to write songs that they wanted included on the album And would get this way they could get some writing and publish publish, publishing credits as well. Um, Considerations were kind of made with all of this, but the band members, you know, weren't really satisfied with the writing credits on this album. Um, After the new year, I'm sorry, the, the the band at that point then go on. They went on a Christmas holiday in '79, but after the new year, the band was kind of slow to get started again, and Peter began working with a band called Wasted Youth uh, who were putting out a new single and they asked Peter to produce it, which he did, and he plays on it a little bit. Uh, Sounds Magazine called Peter for an interview and sent journalist Dave McCullough to Peter's house in Forest Hill. Now, narcotic reputations around The Only Ones were well-known, but in the past, it was kind of only alluded to in the press. But this interview with McCullough shed more light on the topic and Peter said he he didn't like that people connected the band with drugs but it was probably too late for that so Baby's Got a Gun was released April 11th 1980 controversy ensued immediately when a poster given to record shops to promote the album featured the toddler Peter Jr. sitting with a handgun okay so Baby was like, you know, a baby in diapers, you know, holding a <laughs> gun. So some stores protested this. And also there was a track, the track, Why Don't You Kill Yourself? Started, started, started to be a problem because yeah, people were writing see- to Peter Parrott in care of CBS saying that they were going to kill themselves. Okay. <laughs> All right. And the label like began to panic. So. Um, also at this time, the, the music scene in England was changing and the critics that were reviewing this album were, were a whole new set of critics. A lot of the older ones had moved on to other things and this kind of new breed thought that the band was, was old hat. And even though with that though, the album got to number 37, which I believe is their best selling album at the time. Okay. So, uh, you know, it didn't matter. They still were, were selling uh, somewhat. But um, a few days after the release, the, uh, the, big, the band began a 23-day tour starting in Newcastle, and they were on tour with Wasted Youth opening for them. Um, in May, they would do their last John Peel session, and right after, through some connections of Mike Kelly's, they were offered a job opening for The Who on their summer American tour. Yeah, now... Yeah, now, now. Pete wow. Townsend a was a fan of The Only Ones. He liked them, okay? And Alan Mayer, at that point, was actually thinking of leaving the band, okay? And he spoke with Mike Kelly prior to the announcement of the Who tour, and Kelly told him and said, listen, we're going to be opening for the Who, so why don't you stay in the band? And he agreed, okay? So... They met the who in San Diego and they played in front of 12,000 people at the sports arena there. And they went on to play 10 dates in Los Angeles and they were asked to leave the tour at that point. Okay. And the reason they were asked to leave the who tour is because, well, Roger Daltrey apparently had a problem with them. And the excuse was they are not bonding with the main band okay, the, the only ones didn't hang out with, with you, they didn't hang out with people, they, they, did, they did their own thing, okay, especially Peter Perry he wasn't yeah. the social type, okay and apparently Daltrey had a problem with this, Pete Townsend who, you know, originally wanted them on the tour was so drunk and coked up on the tour that he really, did, you know, he was out of it and couldn't argue the point to try to keep them on so eventually, the, after a few dates there, the only ones were dropped from the tour. Now they did get back on their feet right away because Xena organized some gigs in the LA area. Um, after a while, um, the infamous Kim Fowley would come calling. He became aware they were in town yes. and he wanted to coax them into recording a yes. studio. Um, the plan was that, Fowley had a friend with the studio who would charge the band $20 an hour, but would bill CBS 50 bucks an hour. Okay. So they would pocket the difference. <laughs> and and Peter, yeah, and that happens all the time. Peter That's didn't right. go for it. Okay. And he turned him down. Uh, you know, Kim Fowley, he didn't take him that seriously at that point. You know, he, he didn't want to work with him. Uh, Now, they were doing okay in L.A., but things began to kind of unravel. There was a gig in San Francisco that was attended by the British music magazine Record Mirrors U.S. correspondent, a guy named Mark Cooper. And he gave them a a terrible review, uh, basically saying they were boring, they were drugged out. And he said, Peter just looked like Keith Richards, you know, totally wasted. Now... (laughs) Now John Perry Perry and his wife I can see that Got in a minor drug bust Uh, Peter got into it with a parking attendant In a a parking garage in San Francisco Apparently the attendant didn't like Parrot being like a British rock star type And he pushed Peter up against a wall Peter got into the car And hit him with the car Sending him flying okay now the guy went totally backwards did a somersault okay <laughs> and th- peter just left and and the band came back to new york city uh peter started to get word a few days later that the cbs was notified that he needed to go back to san francisco to face assault charges okay for hitting the guy with the car uh he ignored it and instead they played a gig at tracks in new york city uh, the crowd was there. They gave them three encores. Okay, So two days after that gig at tracks. Peter almost got shot in the crossfire of a double-drive shooting in New York City. All right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just like one thing after Jesus another. Jesus Christ,
0: this guy. It was
1: at a point when they were staying at the Gramercy Park Hotel. Uh, Zena was, was making plans and announcing that they were going to play Canada. John Perry wanted none of it. He announced he wasn't going to do those gigs in Canada. Uh, Mike Kelly got a visit from John Perry in in his room at the Gramercy, uh, basically said uh, that he was leaving the band. And he would go and tell Peter and Zena in their room. And and Peter admitted to John, who was his close and, and longtime friend, that he was thinking of ending the band and leaving himself um basically the only ones broke up right there okay it was at least for the moment that they would break up now alan Mayer had gone to california uh kelly went to toronto to a friend's farm uh peter Zena, their friend kathy barrett and peter jr went back to england uh they were ba- they were very lucky they went when they did because uh, there were legal proceedings against Peter for hitting the parking attendant in San Francisco, and they had gotten, they had gotten a delay on that, And the reason they got the delay on the and they, well, they went back during the delay, but they what they bad. used as an excuse was was that Peter had developed hepatitis, and it was probably from the incident with the stripper in Atlanta when he injected. Okay, so yeah, I mean that's a that's a common problem with people that 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 shoot drugs. You end up with these blood-borne diseases that you don't realize. Okay, so hepatitis B would be something that he would have to live with. Um, But Peter was ready at this point to pursue a solo career. But one thing that nobody thought of at first was the record contract with CBS. Okay, they were still under contract. Now Alan was asked by Chrissy Hind to join the pretenders, but he couldn't do it because if he started playing live with them, it would look like the only ones broke up. Okay. And that just wasn't known yet. Okay. Um, the band came up with the idea that because they had another album due, they would do an album of covers and really nobody had done that in those days. Okay. An album of covers and they were kind of just suggesting that to CBS with the idea that maybe CBS would just drop them, okay, because that's what they wanted. And uh, But CBS actually went for it and said, okay, you know, that sounds like a great idea, all right? So um, they went to the, into, into the CBS studios in London, and they did some covers including Bob Dylan's Mama, You've Been on My Mind, Uh, The Supremes, You Can't Hurry, Love. Uh, John Perry was thinking of doing a 10-minute slow version of Sugar Sugar by the Archies. I mean, they just probably thought of like the stupidest shit to do (laughs) they didn't get, just to get it over with. Yeah, to get it over with. Um, The only ones hadn't played together for quite a few months at that point. Uh, But in November, they played a gig with several other acts, including The Specials and Madness. It was actually a charity gig they did to provide blankets and heating costs for the elderly. Uh, A journalist from Sounds Magazine gave them a great review at that show. Uh, They would continue with the gig at Dingwalls on Christmas. And then into the new year of 1981, they did some farewell dates ending at the Lyceum Ballroom. Uh, Melody Maker, New Musical Express uh, would give them glowing reviews. And CBS would finally drop them. Out of their contract Okay So for the next 10 years Peter kind of dropped off the map Alright He had developed hepatitis B Like I just said Yeah, uh, He got very ill um, He would recover But was very deeply depressed He fell into Much more serious drug addiction And became basically A ghost of himself Uh you know, John Perry would visit him through the 80s, but he could tell his friend was was wasting away. Um, after the farewell gigs that they did, uh, they started to get into legal trouble. All right. And there was some busts related to their coke dealing organization that they had. Uh, several of the players went to jail. Uh, Peter would be picked up a few times, but luckily never had to take you know, a big fall. Uh, however, whenever he was busted, he would get dope sick in jail, which he hated. He would start to have withdrawals. Uh, John Perry, you know, would visit, like I said, um, but but Peter would rarely leave the house. Um, in '83, Johnny Thunders was in town, and he convinced Peter to do an encore of "You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory" at the Lyceum in London. Um, of course. Scoring drugs and getting high would follow at Peter's house. Uh, Xena would give birth to their son, Jamie, on July 19th, 1983. The baby was premature, but it was also born drug addicted, as Xena had begun to do heroin more as well, okay? Now, social services took the newborn baby away and put it in foster care, and they were allowed eventually to see the baby, but it took some time for them to regain custody. Uh, Peter Jr. and Jamie were put on what was called an at-risk list, which meant constant harassment from social services to check on them. Uh, it would be, it wouldn't be until 1992 until they got off that list. Through most of the 80s, there were more drug busts and many more. Uh, Many more kind of like uh, people that would be hanging around the parrots, okay, that were really just unsavory types, okay. Uh, In 88, they decided to just stop all of their activities, the dealing, okay. Uh, Xena couldn't even leave the house at that point without getting arrested for something or questioned, okay. So they began an outpatient program, um, And, you know, it started off with with methadone. And in the beginning of 89, Peter began writing again. Um, By 1990, there was beginning to be renewed interest in The Only Ones. Uh, New bands like The Church, for instance, were discussing in interviews about their Only Ones influence. And it could be heard in their sound as well. Uh, John Perry was also involved in an old recording, live recording, that was being released as a live album by the only ones. Um, Melanie maker magazine called for an interview and Peter typically was three hours late. Uh, He gave a candid and revealing interview about his lost years. Uh, He also kind of whimsically said he hoped somebody would lend him 250,000 pounds so he could put out a proper record. All right. Now, Peter and John Perry, Started playing again and recording a little bit here and there, and writing. Uh, Peter it turned out had a treasure trove of live footage from the only ones' days in his house, uh, live video footage, and he would release this in nineteen ninety one on VHS as the video compilation Faster Than Lightning. Uh, between the live album that came out, Faster Than Lightning video, and a release of the Peel Sessions. That were done peter found that you know people were starting to get interested in him again and wanted to work with him in april of 91 though uh tragedy would strike when old friend johnny thunders died in new orleans uh the news hit peter hard he hadn't seen him in a few years but he always you know enjoyed the company of his friend he always liked to work with him and he always did regret that he didn't work with him more, um, but now that would be impossible. Peter was determined to make a comeback, but unfortunately, Zena was not well enough to really manage as before. Uh, they found a guy named Adrian Maddox, and after a series of meetings, Adrian and Peter verbally agreed to work together. Um, Adrian tried to bring some order to the chaos of Peter's life, he had done some demos and Adrian wanted to have them to have them to see if he could pass them on to some record companies. OK. Um, Peter, however, was kind of nervous about that prospect. He he didn't want to give up the possession of these these demos, but he, he did. He, he gave them to to uh, Adrian and Adrian tried to shop it around. Uh, one thing he did immediately for, for Peter was he got a publishing deal for the Only One's back catalog with a company called Complete Music. So, but what he decided to really do with Peter was to get him out playing live again. And he dropped a bomb on him and said that, we, I, I want you to play as an exclusive guest with a band called The Heartthrobs at one of their shows. Now, he never heard of this band but he agreed to meet the band before they had their gig in October of 91 at the Camden underworld. Um, the heartthrobs and Peter agreed to do two songs. Uh, they would do Patti Smith's pumping my heart. And also the only ones lovers of today as an encore. So that would be his reintroduction back to the, the live circuit. Um, the gig went fantastically. Uh, Peter was supposedly very nervous, but it went, it went together fantastically and he actually couldn't sleep for days afterwards because he was so excited. Uh, Zena told him he needed to get his own band together and start playing. Okay, get his own, his own band. Not the only ones, but, you know, something of his own. By mid-92, Peter parted ways with Adrian Maddox. Uh, Peter was often panic-stricken, and it became an issue for Adrian, so they kind of parted ways. Uh, a friend named Steve Brickle offered to put a band together for Peter. Zena persevered, and finally Peter checked out the musical ability of Steve's wife, Mayuki. Uh, Steve had bragged about her piano playing skills, and Peter, not expecting much, came over one day with his acoustic guitar and had to admit that she was an amazing keyboardist. Uh, so Steve announced to Peter at that point that if he wanted other musicians, he would pay for it himself. Okay, so they put an ad out in the Melody Maker magazine, and many people came down to audition, but eventually it came down to Richard Vernon on bass, Steve Hands on drums, Jay Price on guitar, and this would be a band called The One. Uh, Instead of the only ones, The One. And in January of 94, they made their debut at a club called the Milky Way in Amsterdam. Uh, Later in the month, they also did their English debut at the Camden Underworld. So in April, Steve came through again and financed Studio Time for four tracks, a song called Baby Don't Talk, Twilight World, Made to Fall Apart, and The Company of Strangers. Uh, They would eventually be released in October of 94 as an EP called The Cultured Palette. Next would be Japan. Okay, They did three shows at The Loft in Tokyo and one at the Osaka Music Hall that went very well. Now, the one was pretty active to start by 1994. But uh, after the release of the Woke Up Sticky EP, which was another one, uh, there was a full album called Woke Up Sticky. The band pretty much ran its course. Uh, sadly, Peter would relapse into some drug use again. Uh, he also developed COPD related to his chasing the dragon drug use, his crack smoking cocaine stuff, uh, particularly the, the chasing of the dragon really gave him the COPD because when you do that, you're breathing in toxins from the aluminum and and all that stuff uh he would be off you know out of it for a, a few years but he managed to come back uh in 2017 he came out with an album called how the west was won and he was playing with his two sons yeah right
0: yeah, that's incredible, man. After all that shit, so they, they must have worked out the stuff that he must have got. Well, did the the they? Back they yeah, life, I mean, right? they, they, they were probably they just early
1: teens. They got off that ass. list. They, they, he had the kids, but they were hounded by social services all the time because they were on a list of being at risk. Okay. Yeah so yeah, but they were, they uh but the two boys two they minutes. you know being around peter they, they wanted to have a career in music um i know they were involved with the libertines these two guys the sons uh and the libertines were were very popular for a while uh early 2000s i believe uh in england uh definitely you could you could hear the only ones and johnny thunder's influences and all that in that band um when, when Peter put the band together for How the West Was One, he wanted to work with his kids, and, and it, it all came together. Now, they also released a second album in 2019 called Human World. Okay? And both were very well-received, How the West Was One and, and Human yes. World. They made videos for these albums. You could check them out on YouTube. Um, yeah, I mean, let's hope uh, with this pandemic, it ends and Petey can get out there again and record. He's 67 years old. Uh not 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 in the greatest health, but he's still playing. Yep. It's amazing.
0: He's still playing. Actually, he's uh, he's actually, I think he's gonna, he's gonna celebrate a birthday too, because he was born in fifty-two. I'm in, yeah. I'm in seventy-two. I'm gonna yeah. be forty-eight. So this that's year. all I got for you, man. That was a long show. He... I'm glad we did it.
1: Yeah. Holy shit!
0: What a long show! What a history! What a what a history of Yeah, yeah. And I want and to, to thank
1: uh,
0: Nina Antonia,
1: the, the author. Okay, yeah, we had her uh, just on recently as a as a yeah, guest sure for the Rocker Bike and Rob Presents, but I want to thank her specifically for writing the book called "The One and Only Peter Parrott, Ham Fatal." Okay, by Nina Antonia. Get this book. Uh, this was my main source for what we just did. Um, uh, there isn't a lot about Peter Parrott out there. He's a, he's a very mysterious, kind of a you know reclusive guy. No. Uh, doesn't open up that much, but he opened up to to Nina in this book. And I was able to research and, and get this information out to everybody. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, but I couldn't have done it without Nina. So thank you, Nina. Yeah. That was definitely a long show and a lot
0: of stuff and uh, a lot of stuff that I learned from you. Cause well, I, you weren't um, familiar with I, I, him I at all, right? I didn't, didn't finance many things, but um, I wasn't familiar with him at all. I just started looking up and I looked at interviews. I saw like probably six, seven interviews here, but I, I definitely found that Lou Reed and that definitely uh, stuff about him. So, you know, like that whole Velvet Underground, like, you know, he. But you can tell he influenced so many other bands. And, uh, oh, it was a pretty interesting yeah, journey, but the yeah, they I mean, were the drug, oh, my you God, know, he was and, epic. And could and you imagine drugs. him and Thunders
1: hanging out? Holy shit. Oh,
0: my God. I know. I, 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 I think, think it has, has to do to with his wife. He's I, to I a think, lot, think it has to do, to do with the fact with that he his wife.
1: probably never really overdosed. Okay? He ended up getting other sicknesses related to his drug use, but he never... He never overdosed, which is what does in a lot of people when they when they inject drugs. Uh, he t- he tended to smoke it, which is a little bit easier, yeah. you know, to control. Yeah. Um. But I don't recommend anybody doing heroin. It's a, it's a horrible drug.
0: Yeah. No. So, Mike, right. thank you for a great job, and uh, we'll tour next. Yeah, week yeah, we got some uh, maybe some live music lined up. Got to see. Uh, we're
1: hoping that we could do something in the bars, and you know things don't close down. And hopefully, uh, if not, we'll have a we'll have a special show regardless, an end of the year show regardless. Oh, and that might. Okay, so where can we find you, Rob?
0: Yes, yes. So. I'm <laughs> um, on Instagram, Facebook, getting lumped up. any media, social media outlet. I'm on pretty much on everything. And how can I get getting lumped up? Everything lumped up is
1: associated to us. And if you look yeah, it up, yeah, actually up, Google up, has up my name, Michael, all name all over the um, place. I'm on uh, Twitter, RockerMike3. I'm on Instagram, RockerMike212. I'm now on Parlor and Miwi as RockerMike. Uh, find me there. Um, I'm also on Facebook under my birth name, Michael Baker, and we also got the um, the Rock Show group page on Facebook. Join that. Lots of stuff every day. Song of the day. Lumped up song of the night. You know, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of music. If you want to know about music or bands you never heard of or things you love, have a try. Uh, look up. Uh, look up. Uh, the Michael Rock uh, uh, yep. on Twitter, and you'll get something new every day. Even on Instagram, he got he got something new for people every day. You'd be surprised how much you will learn, and you will probably uh, find some new music that you yep. never heard of that you're gonna love and you're gonna listen to to the rest I'm of your life. Get up, and and with Take that, care. people don't get drunk. <laughs>